Hi, this is Fairy and Fantasy Session 11. Today we will look at the big choice our reformed knight makes at the end of The Wife of Bath's Tale, and its differences from the choice made by Gawain in Dame Ragnall. But don't worry, I promise we won't skip over the sermon. Okay, I want to go a little bit out of order today. I want to start off by skipping the long pillow sermon that uh, the knight's ugly wife gives him. Not because I want to skip it. It's extremely important. If it were not extremely important, it wouldn't be over a hundred lines long. So uh, we're going to come back to it. But I want to go first to the choice and pick up where we left off last time, really looking carefully at the similarities and differences from last time, because there are some crucial differences uh, in the final choice and the resolution of this story. What are the terms of the choice she gives him? Very importantly, different ones. Yeah, Dory? Okay, she's, she can either be... Be- so, so there's no question about being part-time beautiful, right? She's going to be full-time beautiful and, or full-time ugly. But in addition, she's going to be either faithful and ugly or beautiful and unfaithful. You can have me beautiful, but then take your chances of, you know, who's uh, going to come around visiting while you're not here. Uh, and that brief, salacious reference to, uh, uh, you know, the repair to your hus, or, or in other plaza, right? Or, in fact, all over the place, right? Or, have me ugly, but then I'd be faithful and virtuous and good. Just hideous. Now, what's significant about this change? It's a big change. Okay? In the other version, it was a choice between private pleasure or public standing. Yeah. And here it's more of public standing with good virtue, I guess, or good virtue versus beauty. Yeah, if we, it's in a sense, you could say that public standing is still involved. Right, if that is the reputation of your wife matters, as we see it did, for instance, in Lanval, right? I mean, uh, Guinevere's lack of faithfulness was a public reputation issue. Certainly it was for Lanval. Um, but I agree, it certainly does shift the emphasis there significantly. Mac? Uh, without the depiction of the like, horrible, hateful manners, etc., the, uh, the ugly woman option doesn't have any negatives except she's ugly. Yeah, yeah, it's not, um, I mean, you know, maybe there would be, I mean, he certainly doesn't look forward to it, but I agree, we don't get, not only do we not get description of the horrifying feast and her hideous gluttony, um, it doesn't happen, right? I mean, we're just told there was no feast, there was no celebration, there was no joy. In fact, what people wanted to happen in Dame Ragnall did happen in this story. That is, they had a quiet little ceremony, no feast, and kind of, and he just kind of sneaks reluctantly off to bed, right, and stays inside all day. Um, so we don't get that kind of emphasis of the public shame and spotlight, which Dame Ragnall is so careful to keep on herself. No, no, no. I want a really public wedding. I want a big public announcement in advance. I want to be up on the dais at the, you know, at a major feast and everything. Um, and Really, the effect of that clearly is to draw attention to this. See, 
What a horrible public spectacle this is. Get used to this, Sir Gawain. If you choose me ugly during the day, this is what the rest of your life is going to look like. Everybody staring at you pityingly, um, you know, as I embarrass you in every possible way, like in every different setting. Um, So I agree that the, the lack of that does really change the force. And I think it does end up, although I do agree, Kat, that there is still a a public reputation issue uh, with her faithfulness, it does seem to me to de-emphasize that as a major factor in this choice. Whereas how you will look in the eyes of other people seems to be one of the primary poles of the choice that Sir Gawain makes in the previous poem, I don't think that that public opinion, at least we're not really drawn to it in the same way here as we were before. Does that, seem, does that seem right? Does that make sense? What's that poll replaced by then? I mean, if before he was choosing between public honor and private pleasure, what's he choosing between now in this choice? Jordan? Um, I think before no notably was choosing between his public honor and his public pleasure. Now he's choosing how his relationship is going to look. Is it just going to be about the sex with you know a beautiful wife? It doesn't say she won't sleep with him. It just says she'll sleep with everyone else too. Or is it going to be an actual like loving relationship where they care about probably not going to enjoy the sex much? Yeah, and I think that's a really interesting shift because it's true. Before even if we don't. With the Dame Ragnall choice, even if we resist thinking about the beautiful by night thing in a purely sexual way, we can see this, as we said last time, as, you know, sort of thinking of it a little bit more generously as a choice between your reputation in the eyes of others and your private relationship with your wife. They wouldn't enjoy their time together. Because there's that time, remember, again, so similar to the split in Landfall between how you have to act in front of everybody else, and how you get to act behind closed doors, right? They had their, in Landfall and Triamor's very private relationship, which nobody else could see or witness, um, but outside of the privacy of his chambers, he was alone. And so there does seem to be that similar, the day-night distinction seems to establish a similar kind of threshold thing, right? Ugly in private, in our private quarters, in our private relationship, um, but beautiful in the public sphere. Um, So yes, if we sort of therefore take, as Jordan suggests, that private sphere to be more than just about the sex, it's also about their relationship too. Whereas here, I do think that Jordan's right. It draws attention more to the sex itself because sex is what she's talking about. Sure, yeah, this will, you know, it'll be fun in bed, but... But, but, but I'm going to spread the fun around, right? Um, and what's, what their relationship is going to be like, the quality of their relationship, if she's ugly, she comments on, right? I will be an excellent wife to you. Our relationship will be good. Apart from, you know, the bedroom thing, which obviously you're not enjoying right now as he's, right, wallowing and torning toe and throw in bed and she's lying there, smiling, looking at him. Um, I just I love those lines. Uh, so delightfully Chaucerian. But anyway, um, more on that. Again, how she is shifting the emphasis in the particular choice that she's giving him. 
get to th- I, I want to think about it in terms of if we sort of well, boil it down makes it sound like we're doing some kind of violence to it, but sort of at root, what is he choosing between here? How can we, can we put our finger on the essential difference between the two options? When you're stuck, go back and look at the cues that we get. Look how she sets it up. So this starts, let's see about line. Uh, yes. My, uh, okay, so my iPad wasn't letting me scroll there for a second. Yes. I want to look at 1217. 12.17 is the moment when she transitions. 12.16 is the last line of the sermon. And 12.17 is her transition to the choice. But nevertheless, sin ik your delete, he shall fulfill your worldly appetite. Chase new. Sin ik your delete, he shall fulfill your worldly appetite. Choose. How does that help? He says, making the assumption that it does. Okay? She'll satisfy him in everything that's worldly. If she remains beautiful. Since I know your delight, since I have learned from listening to you, though she's been doing all the talking, what you take pleasure in, I will, what's the word she used? Fulfill your worldly appetite. Now, one thing to note. What does she look like right now? Ugly poor old hag. She's still ugly, yes. Another huge difference between the Ragnall choice and the wife of Bath choice is that the woman has already turned beautiful. Ragnall becomes beautiful. As soon as he turns himself, as soon as, as soon as Gawain says, okay, I will do more than kiss you, and he takes a deep breath and rolls over, bam, she's beautiful. And she's like, hi, would you like to keep me this way? Right? And that, that's when she presents him the choice. And he's like, wow. So she's already beautiful. And, sa- and that's when she gives him the choice. Here, she's still ugly. It's not until after he chooses that she says, cast up the curtain. Right? See who it is. Right? See how it is. And then he finds her beautiful and has his wow moment. Right? Though he doesn't get a speech. He just has had it bathed in a bath of bliss and he kisses her a thousand themas in a rue and, and off we go. Right? But um, <laughs> no speeches. No speeches. Uh, but I, but it, I think it's very important. She is still ugly and old and presumably poor. Right? Um, whereas with Dame Ragnall, there is a do-you-like-what-you-see element. Decide when and how often you want to keep this. Right? And I think that that makes a, that makes a big difference. But, but, but more. More on the worldly appetite. More on what this has to do with his delete, with what he takes pleasure in. Yeah? Uh, it seems that she's literally asking him to choose between, like, 
pleasures of the world and the pleasures of the spirit, like that, that kind of division, because it's like either you get the physical aspects of marriage or like more spiritual <coughs> aspects of marriage, loyalty, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah, yeah. I, I, it does create a kind of a subdivision in the pleasures associated with marriage. Again, going back to what Jordan says, this is not have a good relationship with me or look good in the eyes of others, but choose between one of these two different aspects of our marital relationship, right? Do you want gratification of your physical desire or do you want a relationship built on trustworthiness and virtue and and loyalty and, and everything else? To put that same thing in a different direction, which, and here again, I think following her cue, your worldly appetite. There are, in each of these options, a different aspect of his worldly desire, his worldly appetite, which would be satisfied, right? He can't get both things, which, she seems to be presuming, a husband would want from his relationship with his wife, but he can get either one. What are the two things? That he can get from her? One of the two pleasures that he's choosing between? I agree with Max's characterization. The one is physical and the one is sort of spiritual or moral. But it's not just we'll have a good relationship. I'll be loyal and we'll be happy together. Because I'm not sure exactly how happy he'll be. In fact, it seems like he'll most likely be unhappy either way. I mean, that's okay, like... Bedtime will be fun when she's beautiful, but eh, uh, I don't think he's going to be real happy in that relationship um, with the jealousy which he's going to experience if other medieval romances are anything to judge by. This is why uh, beautiful young wives and daughters so often get locked up in the top of towers in medieval romances to prevent exactly that kind of thing um, from their, by their husbands or fathers who are jealous of them, that is, desiring to preserve their chastity, not wanting to share. So the one desire is obvious, right? That is the, the, the desire for his own physical gratification. But what's the other one? The other one that she emphasizes in the terms that she... Because it's not just about the quality of their relationship, though that is involved, but it's about specifically her sexual fidelity. That's the big issue that she talks about in The Choice, that she emphasizes. Well, since he's not exactly virtuous himself, like... Like as Jordan was saying, it might be an easy choice because he could have the sex with her even though he, she'd be, you know, sharing it around. <laughs> Does it mean he'd have less? And it wouldn't matter to him because he's not virtuous and he shouldn't care. But on the other hand... Um... <laughs> the, this, the wife of Bath herself in her prologue makes exactly that argument. Uh, she describes, you know, her own... She has a large worldly appetite herself. Uh, and she uses the metaphor, she's like, it's like a candle flame. Right? No matter how many candles you light from the flame, it still burns just as much. Right? So when you share, you don't have less. What's the problem? Yeah, yeah, sure. So one could take that approach. So he's put in the dilemma of, I think, one that reflects more on himself because it's like, do you, are, are you really still 
Are you really that unvirtuous that you would choose me beautiful? Or do you want to change your mind about how you look upon yourself and your, and your state of, or your lack of virtue and your general state of life? And do you want to choose me as a virtuous person? So it's a choice not just for her. I think it's more choice for him. Good. And I, I, I think you, you, you're bringing out something which I think was already implicit in Mac's definition of it, but, but I think it's, you're bringing it out even more, and I think it's very appropriate. Dame Ragnall gives him the choice between two things, both of which are good, but which are separate, right? Do you want public honor, which is clearly a good thing, which is clearly a valuable thing in this world, or do you want, you know, private pleasure? Do you want, uh, do you want privately a good relationship with with your wife and all of the rewards that, like, Sir Lanfall is obviously enjoying in private, right? Um, which are not just sexual, um, but sort of relationship-based as well. And these are, those are two goods, and they're two separate goods, and she says to, you know, prioritize between the two of them. Here, there does seem to be a, one choice which is higher and one choice which is lower. If he were to say, all right, I don't care, I want you pretty, I'll take it. That, that does seem to be a baser choice. A choice of the purely physical above the moral. So I agree that it, it seems to me a more weighted choice in that way. There is, between the two of them, an answer which seems righter than the other. Of course, the third option, the none of the above option, is the best of all, as was the case for Gawain. But again, I think here differently. Instead of saying, so she's giving him this choice, one pleasure which would be a baser pleasure, one pleasure which would be a higher pleasure, a more spiritual pleasure, more moral pleasure. But, notice in both cases, he shall fulfill your worldly appetite. Both of them are still about his appetites. Which of these pleasures would you prefer to have? Therefore, his response is even more fitting. Remember, Sir Gawain's response was, I can't choose. I I have no idea. Like, I can see arguments on both sides. Therefore, I need your help. Since I am completely in your control, um, you know, loose me however you want to. You decide because I can't. Here, he turns it back. No, 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 no. I'm not going to choose my pleasure. Look at the terms of his choice. Again, we can see the difference between the terms of this and the terms that Sir Gawain uses. Where he says, you know, I am entirely yours. Do with me what you want. What does our nameless knight here say to our nameless hag? Me and me love and weave so dare. I put me in your wees a governance. Chaseth yourself which may be most pleasance and most honour to you and me also. He don't know force the weather of the twa, for as you leaketh, it sufficeth me. Any terms jump out at you there? Anything that seems, especially coming from Dame Ragno, of particular importance <coughs> or interest? Yeah, Duncan? Uh, governance? Governance. Just, we just talked about sovereignty. Yeah. Um, and that seems like it'd be on the same page to me. Yeah, I, I, I put myself in your wise governance, right? I recognize that you have wisdom and can choose, right? And I submit myself to your choice. 
He does, it's not that he doesn't speak at all like Gawain does, right? I mean, he does submit himself. And at that line, at 1231, it sounds like he's going in exactly the Gawain direction. He put me in your visa governance. I submit myself to your authority. Gawain, from there, goes on to emphasize, I, you know, everything I have is yours. I am bound to you. You do with me whatever you like. But notice that's not, he doesn't keep going in that direction. Notice where he goes. Chaseth yourself, which may be most pleasant and most honor to you, and may also. Gawain doesn't say that. Do you see the difference? Note, I'm not trying to suggest that the, this answer is like a, a contradiction or, or, or says, uh, says something completely different from the other, but the emphasis is different. And I think given the circumstances and the difference in the choice, it's an interesting difference in emphasis. Taylor? Um, is it the fact that he says, what's best for you and for me, instead of what's best for you, which is what Wayne said? Yes, he does sort of emphasize, you're going to make this choice for the sake of both of us, right? Yeah? Um, is it that after the hundred line sermon, we, he realizes that he may not be in, on the moral high ground in order to make this decision that will, you know, bring honor to the both of them? Yeah, maybe he, maybe he, uh, maybe he's not on the moral high ground. Of course, we might already have been suspecting that, you know, rapist and everything, right? Um, yeah, yeah, but he now recognizes this, whereas before that did not really seem to be the case. Um, yeah, yeah. Notice his emphasis is not just, since I am completely yours, you do with me what you, but rather, you do what's best for you. I give you power, not just over me. I don't just recognize that you have power over me. I give you power over yourself. Choose yourself, which may be the most pleasant and most honor to you and to me. Choose for yourself which you would rather be. Notice if he chooses either way, what is he doing to her? He's not just dictating whether she's going to be pretty or ugly. What's he also dictating by his choice if he chooses? Her morality. Yes. I choose for you to be a strumpet. Or I choose for you to be loyal and devoted to me. And in the end what he says is, I'm not making that choice. You choose what you think would be most pleasant and most honorable. Gosh, wouldn't those terms be an interesting way to characterize the choice that she's given him? Between plaisance and honour? Anyway, he says, you choose. What would be most plaisance and most honour? For you. And, 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 and for me. But for you. Choose your own destiny. Choose your own morality. So when she talks about so havi get of you maestria, quod she, sin ime chase and govern as me lest? Notice she doesn't say, so you're admitting that I'm the complete boss of you? That's what Ragnell says, right? That's the issue for Ragnell. No, when she talks about maestria here, she's talking about over herself. I can choose. You're saying, let me clarify, you're saying ime chase and govern as me lest? I can do whatever I want to do. That's the maestria that she gets. 
Yes. So she chooses. I will obey to you both. I'm going to be both beautiful and faithful. You're going to have both plaisance and honor. Now, what about the sermon? First thing we have to remember, it's place in the larger context of the story. This is not just a digression. It makes sense if we think about the big picture. Remember, as the moment that Guinevere steps in and stops him being executed and instead sends him on this quest, this ceases to be a story about crime and punishment and it becomes a story about education and rehabilitation. We're going to send him on this reforming quest that he may unlearn the evil that he did, that he, that he you know, perpetrated against this one woman and, by extension, women in general. And that's why he is called before the female tribunal, right? <laughs> the queen and all the ladies of the court to whom he has to answer. So, therefore, in the big shape, we have the rape, the quest that he set on, the marriage proposal, well, proposal, demand, right? Then the sermon, and then the choice at the end, the final moment where he reverses this. Did you notice also uh, the conspicuous word choice when he says that he's not going to choose? He says, Ido no force, the way that of the twelve, right? Ido no force is a kind of a conspicuous phrase in this guy's mouth. Mr. Be very force hereafter her maidenhead earlier on. Right? Um, it's, a different, it's a different figure of speech that he's appealing to. You don't know force. Uh, it just means, like, I don't care. I'm not going to take charge of this. Um, it's, a, it's an idiom, but a conspicuous one. He was Mr. I take lots of force uh, in choosing on behalf of women uh, and what happens to them previously. It, it makes it a much more overt reversal uh, of his previous choice. That starts the poem. But anyway, so seeing, so the sermon is how we get from the demand for the marriage, which is sort of revisiting uh, in one sense, as we saw last time, the rape situation upon him, but still without any obvious moral change on his part, to the choice where he now is seeming at least to act differently than he did before. So... The sermon seems to do him some good. Um, especially those of you who haven't read much medieval literature before. I'm not going to assume that you followed her arguments with great care and deliberation through the sermon. Um, if you have read much medieval literature before, you might have done. These are famous medieval arguments. And also, this is the kind of thing that medieval poems do a lot. That is... Let us pause now and summarize books one through three of Boethius for the benefit of our audience who might not have Boethius on their shelf. And boom, we'll launch into this whole argumentation. Um, let's do a brief overview sketch. So when we talk about how is this sermon relevant to the final choice, we're actually talking about something um, rather than just talking about those, you know, hundred lines which I mostly skipped over. So um, she starts off on what issue? She's addressing the three accusations he's made, right? The three complaints he's brought against her, which were what? 
What doesn't he like about her? She's old, she doesn't have any money, and... She's old, ugly, and... And, and, and a peasant, yes. She's so, uh, so loathly and so old, they are told, and cometh of so low a kind, so low a nature, so low a... Yes, she's so base-born. Where does she start to address these? In what order does she address them? I'll stop asking questions. She starts with nobility, with the peasant thing. She goes nobility, poverty, then age. Um, And she kind of throws ugly in with old uh, there at the end. Um, And she does this in diminishing length. That is, she talks at great length about nobility... Uh, not that long about poverty and very briefly about age and ugliness. Um, Her basic argument about nobility is a series of classical medieval arguments. What is true nobility, she asks. You say I am not noble. Well, let's examine first what does that mean. What is true nobility? True nobility is based on your actions, not on your birth. A truly noble person is one who does noble deeds, one who is good to other people. Those people who are currently called nobles because they are descended from noble families, well, what is the origin of that? How did those families come to be called noble? Because, she says, and this was a a common, though not a universally agreed upon medieval idea, that their ancestors at some point were in fact good people. And were acclaimed for their nobility of character. Does this guarantee that their descendants are going to be noble? No, it does not. She proves, she says, this is the nature of true nobility. That that is, true nobility is noble character and noble actions. But it is not, as she says, it is not annexed to possession. That is, you are not noble just because you come of a noble family. This is when she starts talking about a fire. She talks about fire. She says, let me, let me illustrate. If you take a fire, right, it will do after its kinda. It will do after its nature. It will shine and give forth light and burn no matter where you take it. It doesn't matter. Right? In any context in which fire can burn, the fire will burn. It will do the same. It, just, it does what it naturally is. The same is not true of nobility and and so-called noble people. They don't just automatically do noble things in the way that fire automatically burns and is hot and is bright. Look around, she says. One may often find, and here I want to read this passage. Uh, This is 1150. For God it wot, men may well often find a lord's son do sham and villainia. Evidence, you see, that nobility is not automatically handed down. Because you can find, you know, if you look, the son of a lord who does sham and villainia. Such as, for instance... 
I was going to say rape. raping women by the side of the road comes to mind as an in- instance of sham and villainia that a Lord's son might in fact do, thereby proving himself not truly noble despite the fact that he comes of noble parentage. To throw out a random instance. Yeah, yeah. For he was... Right. And he that Wolhan priest of his gentria, for he was born of a gentle hus, he that Wolhan priest, he that will have the results, the rewards of gentria, who wants to be considered gentle, noble, because he was born of a gentle hus, and had his elders, noble and virtuous, and nell himself, and do no gentle deities, ne following his gentle ancestor, that deities, he is not gentle, be he duke or heir. For villain sinful deities make a chair. It doesn't matter who you are. Even if you're a duke or an earl, if you do a villain sinful deities, villain is the uh, the word for peasant. If you do sinful deeds which are associated with peasantry and not nobility, then you are a churl. You are a peasant. It doesn't matter if you're a duke or an earl. What matters is virtuous deities. So don't talk to me about how high and noble you are and how base I am, Mr. Rapist. <laughs> Who's the churl here? And she applies it to herself, line 1171. And therefore, leve husband, therefore, dear husband, thus concluda. I'll wear it that mean ancestors were ruder, yet my they... Yet my they hear God, and so help ea grant me grace to live in virtuously. It is possible, despite the fact that my parents were rude and that my parents were peasants, it is possible for me to live virtuously. Van ami gentle, Juan that he beginna to live in virtuously and wave a sinner. Therefore, if I were, you know, to choose not to act sinfully, I would be gentle then, wouldn't I? So we've solved this gentility, nobility, peasantry problem. If I were to be given the opportunity to make good choices and be a virtuous person and not, say, sleep around with everybody all the time, if I were to be given that option, I could be gentle. I would be gentle. How about poverty? He doesn't like her because she's poor, she says. Yeah, nobody likes being poor. But poverty is hateful good. Line 1195. It's hateful good. It's good for you. Poverty is. Nobody likes it. Nobody wants it. It's a gift nobody chooses. Well, that's not quite true. There was an exception. A significant one that she points to earlier on. How do you know for a fact that poverty is not evil? That, like, you're not bad because you're poor? Because Jesus was poor, yes. When God incarnated himself in human form, he chose to be poor. This proves that it's not a bad thing intrinsically, or God wouldn't have chosen it. Yeah, yeah. So we have a a strong counterexample there. But she says, poverty is hateful good. Nobody really likes it, but it is beneficial to people. It does good for you. It has virtuous, it, it, it improves your virtue, it improves you spiritually, even though outwardly, physically, it, it involves suffering and loss. What kinds of benefits does it give you? 
And she cites several, again, really classic medieval truisms. It's a, it's a kind of love where she starts, a full great bringer out of busyness. Do you not have enough free time? Are you scurrying around in your business all the time? Do you sometimes say, oh, I just wish that I could have more free time? Well, you know what? Try homelessness. <laughs> Quit your job, go off and live in the wilderness, and you know what? You'll have a lot more time on your hands. You can solve this problem. If you weren't always scurrying around trying to make money and do all these things and, you know, and take care of your quote-unquote needs, you would be much more relaxed. Now, that by itself doesn't seem like a very satisfying answer. Uh, and it's one of the funniest of the ones that she puts, but it's where she begins. It's a great amender ache of sapience. It increases your wisdom, your perspective on things. It, makes, it helps you both to know God and yourself better. It is a, speaking of perspective, it is a perspective glass through which it's a spectacle through which you can see who your true friends are. Poverty famously reveals who your true friends are. So, everybody knows, everyone has always known, ever since ancient days. You know, she's quoting Seneca, for instance. She's citing Seneca, rather, Boethius, lots of authors, about who, how beneficial poverty is. That is, if you are interested in virtue and in spiritual good instead of just material good. You find that if you give up material good, much benefit comes to you. How about old people? Well, she admits they're ugly, but wise people respect the aged. Also, she points out, age and ugliness are full great wardens of chastity. Great wardens of chastity are age and ugliness. And again there, if you're interested in spiritual virtue rather than merely material goods and physical pleasures, you will see that there is great benefit. Now, how, with her sermon, is she setting him up? What is the relevance of this long piece? It may be partially explained by sheer indulgence. In, the word Chaucer would use is sentence, substance, right? This is a lot more weightier story with a nice sermon chucked in in the middle of it, right? Now you have experienced a good story and you've received some moral improvement. In the Middle Ages, that's what we call a win-win situation. (laughs) But I don't think it's just that. I don't think it is simply a digression for the sake of readerly edification. Though if you're paying attention, it certainly does that too. Jordan? Well, each of the things, at least in the poverty and the, uh, the, um, the lineage thing, is a lot of about choice and the willfulness and how you choose to live your life, which I think sets up the fact that she's 
he is choosing forward and he needs to recognize that level and give himself because none of the suppliers he needs to shoot. So none of the suppliers that go per se, he's the one deciding. Yes. That's the final step, right? She's coaching him the kind of choice he could make. Right? Remember, you're making choices. These choices have an impact. Are you going to be noble or are you going to be a churl? Like you've been. Let's be honest. Right? And then, and poverty. Don't forget, look past appearances. Look past merely worldly things. And you see there are higher and greater goods. Poverty, famously, gives you that. The sacrifice of the material and the benefits to the spiritual. What she hasn't explicitly coached him in yet is that final step that he takes. Now, choose, apply this, not just for you, but for me. Grant this to somebody else. I have shown that everybody can choose, that everybody determines we're not like fires, automatically doing what we automatically do. In addition, her kind of the notes she takes, she puts out on uh, virtue, I mean, nobility by birth, and nobility by conduct, and virtue and poverty are all kind of weighting the scale in the, uh, the spiritual direction of the choice you can ask and make as soon as you get to the sermon. Yeah, yeah, I agree. I mean, it seems after the sermon, it would be a, it seems a huge failure for him to say, Okay, well, um, thanks for that. Uh, but given the choice, I'm going to take uh, great sex without virtue. Yes, yes, that's exactly what I think is the best thing here. Yeah, that would be like major fail on his part. Um, <laughs> but, but his saying, oh, okay, so ugly and faithful. Ah, yes, ugly and faithful. That would seem to be success, Right? But still not the highest success, still not the great point. And what he's recognizing is that she, she, she can choose. She should choose. Because, of course, you see also the implications of the association between ugliness and faithfulness. It's not just, I mean, there's more of a, I mean, we, we, we were sort of discussing it rather abstractly before. He's not just, she's not just saying, I will give you, you know, I will be to you both loyal and ugly. Remember what she's just said in her sermon. Loyalty is logically connected with ugliness. Why? Because the other guys who would come around aren't going to come around if she's ugly. Right? In fact, there's this implication there. Well, I'll be beautiful, but, you know, if I'm beautiful, hey, like, beautiful women, you can't trust them right? Guys are going to come, and if they come, uh, I'm going to say yes, right? But if I'm really ugly, hey, nobody will come. My virtue is safe. Are you going to look at women, in other words, as if they're like fire? They do what they do, right? If men approach a woman, what do they do? Say yes, obviously, right? do you open up the possibility that maybe I could make my own moral choice? Maybe I could. Maybe there could be such a thing on earth as a beautiful and yet virtuous woman. Whoa, crazy. <laughs> right? And that's, in the end, the choice that he opens up. No, no, okay, you, you decide. You determine your own moral destiny. 
because people do that. It is not, they're not like fire in that way. Major differences in the very ending of the story post-choice. There are at least two big ones, I think, that we should point to before we go. When she turns beautiful, well, we've already mentioned the fact that there's really no conversation after that, right? But of course, therefore, what is missing from the story that we got in Ragno? Yeah, Beth? Yeah, she's good. She doesn't die or disappear or whatever it is that Dame Ragnall does. Um, here we get, and they lived happily ever after, right? I, I agree. I think that that's an important difference to the ending. We don't get a, and they were really happy for five years, and then Gawain mourned her. What else? The like life of Bath's sort of self-serving condemnation. <laughs> Well, yes, <laughs> yes, yes, yes. The wife of Bath's little benediction, malediction, uh, at the end um, d- does give a different spin to the end of this story. We'll, we'll come back to that uh, briefly. There's a huge thing, though, huge element of the Ragnall story that we're missing. It was the Enshail Bay of him and everything that he do don't him for not like She's obeying him. Yep. Yeah, the, the Ragnall situation, Ragnall does that too, but here it's even more emphasized, right? That we have, the, since you give me sovereignty over myself and allow me to choose, I will choose, to, you've submitted to me, I will choose to submit to you. And that result, parfit joya, unto her leave's end, until, unto their lives end. And we might be appalled in First uh, Corinthians, I think you're thinking of, but yes, yes, uh, it is, it is like Paul, um, and the wife of Bath has quoted that passage from First Corinthians in her prologue. She massively screws it up, but she does quote it, and so therefore we have every reason to be thinking of it. Um, but 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 wait, there's a big part of the Ragnall story that doesn't happen. When she says, in response to the choice, hey, I'm going to be beautiful now full-time. Why? Because she wants to? As a reward for his choice? Aha! The curse breaking! Right? She's like, oh, and now I can tell you the whole story. Really? I was not, I've I've been beautiful all along. I was under a curse, and you've broken the curse. Hooray! No curse! The magic here seems to be entirely her own. You know, we can debate, and I, I mean, I think that, you know, you guys made some very good points that we have good reasons to think of Dame Ragnall uh, and, uh, and her amusingly named brother in fairy terms anyway, but here there's no question. This is much more like a Sir Lownfall situation where we have this unquestionably fairy woman who now transforms herself to be beautiful because she can be either at will and that her choice to be beautiful and virtuous full-time, that is 
the expression of her obedience to him in everything and their perfect joy as a result of their mutual submission. There's no curse that's broken. Ragno maneuvered the situation so that her curse could be broken. That's what she was ho- She was hoping that Sir Gawain would pass all the tests and do the right thing so that it would pay off for her and she could get out of the curse. And he did. And she did. And they lived happily for a little while. Right? Here, the context is very different. She has involved herself for reasons, therefore, which begin to sound more like Sir, more like, like Triamor than like Dame Ragnall? Why did she meet him at the edge of the forest and tell him the correct answer? We know why Dame Ragnall did, but we don't know why she did. In the end, what did she want? It seems to be married to this guy. Puzzling though that seemed at the time. Lanval is chosen out because he's so great. He's very virtuous, and he's underappreciated, but she appreciates him, and she recognizes he's a great guy. Um, This guy, not so much. Nobody's appreciating him. He doesn't seem to deserve much appreciation. But she takes him in, gives him an excellent sermon, and it comes out well. Um, But it makes for a very different situation. I was going to end by making a reference to endings, but I don't have time. Um, Notice, though, we do see some similar patterns in the ending of all four of the stories we've read so far. Um, That is, not only in the fact that they have happy endings, but in the quality of their happy endings. Um, I want to take a couple minutes at the beginning of class next time to talk about that. And then we will move on to Sir Gowan and the Green Knight, in which you will be, for the first time this semester, reading a book made from material drawn from dead trees. Uh, So that'll be interesting. All right. In the next class, we embark on our last and longest Middle English text, the classic Sir Gowan and the Green Knight. For the class, I chose to use the new translation of the poem by Simon Armitage, and the main factor that influenced this choice is the fact that this edition has the Middle English and the Modern English on facing pages. Make sure to be looking at the Middle English as you go. For the next class, we'll read the first fit or section of the poem. Thanks for listening, and Godspeed.